Welcome birders, this is Ed Pulling, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. A lot of you probably know my guest on the show today. George Amistad is a well-known North American birder. He leads birding trips. He's been a guide for fuel guides and the ABA and rock jumper, now has his own company. And I met George on the recent uh, cruise to Antarctica. Fascinating guy, wealth of knowledge, really fun to talk to. And I think you'll enjoy hearing from George Armistead on the Bird Banner Podcast, number 144. George, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So great to be here, Ed. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk birds with you. Yeah, birds are always a good topic, especially this time of year when it seems like it's, I don't know about there, but it is freezing here. It's 26 this morning. I had to take my hummingbird feeders in for the night. And uh, it's, uh, I guess that's standard. Oh, you probably don't even have hummingbird feeders here in the winter. You don't have hummingbirds in the winter. Well, I have to say that has been a, that, that has been a, a source of frustration and anxiety to me. I am deeply committed to getting a Rufus hummingbird in my yard or some other crazy hummingbird. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are occurring more and more in the East. So we kept our feeders out pretty late, but now at this point, they're basically freezing, uh, freezing and we're getting hit today with the very beginnings of this winter storm, Elliot, I think they're calling the it. bomb cyclone. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so we we're, used to ca- you know, we used to call them a snowstorm when I was a kid, but now they're a bomb cyclone. Yeah, we're supposed to get like a thirty degree drop in like a matter of a couple hours. It's going to go from like fifty two to like twenty two or colder, and so everyone's like, "What is going to happen here?" Nobody's yeah. sure. Did the Eagles play at home this weekend? Actually, I I I I know they play Christmas Eve. I think they're in Dallas, uh, and they're playing Good Dallas. Choice. It, yeah, it is a big, big game. Yeah, of course. yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, who knew the NFL East would go from like doormats to dominant? I mean, it's NF- just been in a yeah. year or two, even really and, a year. Yeah, it's true. NFC least to NFC beast. Uh, yeah, that's they, good. I like that. Yeah, they really uh, they have come back strong. Yeah, it's all the teams look pretty strong. Well, out here we're all gloating over the the Russell Wilson trades. So. <laughs> 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 you know, oh, poor Ross. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And, Mr. Anyway. Unlimited is looking a little limited these days. Yeah, you know? He is. Well, let's get back to birds. Uh, George, uh, we just got back from Antarctica, and uh, I had I knew of you from your Lifeless podcast and other things, but I'd never met you before that uh, before that trip. And uh, I was excited. I w- I joined up through Alvaro's group. The, the The trip that we were on had had ABA and Rock Jumper and Alvaro's Adventures, and I think uh, uh, photography offshoot of Rock Jumper kind of gather a boat full of all birders. So unlike a typical Antarctic cruise, which is you know a lot of all sorts of different interests, adventuresome people, this was. Birders, birders, and more birders. Uh, and so that was pretty darn cool way to travel on a boat. And uh, so I, I got to spend a little time with you and uh, Alvaro, especially outdoors. And it was it was fun. It really was. Uh, and it was very different. You know, I'd done that cruise twice before, that route, I should say. And yeah, space on deck uh, when pelagic birding was going on, you know, as as I think you detailed a bit in your in your uh, previous episode about the cruise, you know, there's sort of these gaps where you're, you got on, you got landings and then you've got a couple days at sea. And and yeah, it was very different. You know, the other cruises I've been on, you got a, you got a handful of people on deck that are kind of your hardcore seabirders, man. We had a lot of eyes out there looking for seabirds. That was a big, big difference. And I have to say, Ed, I had heard of you before. I'd heard the podcast before. It, I didn't realize who I was talking to when we had that nice conversation walking back from the black-browed albatross and rock oh, okay. penguin colony. We're walking along, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, this is Ed Pullen. And, oh, uh, my gosh. Yeah. And, yeah, and I was like, wow. Because we were just chatting away. And uh, yeah, it was a fun way um, to kind of, you know, get my intro to you. Um, yeah. So, uh, learn yeah. your uh, <laughs> learn your field marks of the birders on the boat. That's good. <laughs> that's right. Got to work on my birder ID. Yeah, it's, it's harder true. when they're all wearing uh, bright yellow parkas, you know. It's true. We And everyone's bundled up on top of the yellow parkas. It can be very difficult to identify some folks. Yeah. <laughs> all but the Brits. I have to say, I learned quickly on deck. If you couldn't find a leader on deck, I call them the Brits. I know there was a Swedish guy, and but they're like seven or eight uh 
old world birders uh, yes. on the boat and they were really freaking good. Oh, it was yeah. like having a whole nother crew of, uh, of guides on the boat. You know, I, yes. I, yeah. I learned uh, they, they were up. You know, I sometimes woke up really early, like four o'clock, you know, and I was like, I sneak out of the room, try to let my roommate sleep. And I'd go and I'd, all I just go, where are the Brits? Okay. They be out. There four or five of them there, four or five <laughs> yeah. in the morning, just looking like crazy. So they. Were, I don't it, think I don't think I ever beat them out on deck in the morning. Those guys were out there. I heard about how they were spotlighting sometimes, even out mm-hmm. at night, looking for seabirds. And yeah. uh, they were yeah, avid, and, and they were more distinctive too. Like you know, there was the one guy had the real pointy hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he yeah. he was easier to pick out in the crowd. Alvaro was actually pretty easy to pick out in the crowd on the landings because he had yes. that bright gl- green fluorescent backpack, mm-hmm. uh, that that dry bag. But yeah, otherwise we looked like someone called us. We looked like a bunch of yellow idiots. I guess they said. Yeah. Which, I, I heard yellow <laughs> penguins. That was maybe a little more generous way to say yes. it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps so. Yes. Anyway, so George, do you have favorite memories of that trip? I, I, the memory I I think of that I missed. I you know we all got on uh, zodiacs to go to shore, uh, and uh, yeah, you were just got in line and got on the Zodiac and whoever was on the Zodiac, you got on the boat with, but I think I was like two people behind or ahead of you on the, on the trip to shore when you had the Antarctic petrol you know, on the water. I was like, yeah. gosh, I just got in the wrong place in line that, that trip. <laughs> I have to say that really was just like the emperor penguin experience was amazing. Um, but like, I spent a lot of time hoping for that. Um, and that was an incredible night and it couldn't have gone any better, but that Antarctic petrol from the Zodiac, I just never in my life ever expected to have an experience like that. Um, yeah. Walk listeners through it. Yeah. So yes, basically, you know, the funny thing is Ed, it was the one time I decided not to bring my big DSLR rig on this trip, I actually got a little like photoed out and folks that know me know I, I like to take some pics, but man, you know, on the trip like this, you can be taking hundreds, even thousands a day and it can get overwhelming after a while. And I thought, you know what, on this landing, I think it was George Point there from Cooverville Island. I thought, you know, I'm going to go wide angle here. I'm not going to bring the big rig. I'm going to go with my phone only and just soak it up, you know, go totally wide, ang- wide angle and just see what I see. And I'm looking forward to just kind of being in the moment, not worrying about capturing images. And so we went ashore. We had a great walk around with uh, this big Gentoo colony all in the snow and the ice. And it was beautiful. And and then they kind of mentioned to us um, that, you know, there was some weather coming and that we would need to get back on uh, the Zodiac and we had elsewhere to go. They weren't deeply concerned about the weather, but it did start to snow. We get on the Zodiac. We're kind of cruising along went over and I think we saw some chin straps. And as we're coming back at this point, we were pretty much the last Zodiac. I think we're the second or the last or the last Zodiac heading back. And uh, Sarah was our Zodiac driver. And and we were enjoying um, some penguins kind of swimming around fairly close to the boat. And all of a sudden I saw this thing wing in and land behind an iceberg and i just naked eyed it but i was like that's an antarctic petrel and it's just like you know you 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 hope that you're gonna see them you know at sea while you're cruising i always say to folks it's kind of like looking for a, a tropic bird on on like the north carolina boats usually they come in high people are expecting to spot them out distant on the horizon like you would some of the other pterodroma gadfly petrels this is actually really a full marine petrel more closely related to the cape petrel or pintado petrels as we took to calling them down there and uh and they actually usually come in from up high and because of that, you often don't spot them until they're right overhead. And that's kind of the typical experience is you're on your boat, you're motor along out at sea and, uh, and, you know, you're cruising, you know, on the big boat and, and you spot them coming in from up high. Uh, I had never expected to see one from a Zodiac so close to land, come in and land. And I said, Sarah, I was like, please, do you mind? Can we, can we just go check this out? You know, she wasn't really a birder. So I was trying to like, you know, try to communicate that this was a different thing. You know, this was not sort of a standard bird nerd thing. This was a really special thing. And God bless her. You know, she was like, yeah, let's go check it out. You know, and and she kind of motored up there to this little iceberg and she had to get through, you know, she had to wind around a little bit to get through this 
to the backside of this berg. And wouldn't you know it, we pull around and there is the thing. It's right in front of a bunch of blue ice and it's just bathing. You know, it's like, a you know, like a, a little kid in a bathtub or something, you know, just, you know, splashing around, having a good old time. And it was probably 30, 40 feet from us. And I just couldn't believe it. Of course, I didn't have my big camera with me. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Alvaro and some other folks on on that, there was only about, what, eight or ten of us on that Zodiac that got to see this. They did have, others had, uh, you know, proper DSLR rigs or video cameras and got some nicer footage. But that was really special. That's kind of the big tube nose that everybody hopes to see on that trip. You know, it's sort of a 50-50 shot on any given cruise. We were lucky to see quite a few of them, but this will definitely be the most memorable one I have ever seen. So that, That's just... Uh... Better lucky than good sometimes, you know, not that you're not good, but I mean, it. Uh, yeah, sometimes yeah. you just got to be in the right place. But exactly. I always tell people you're more likely to see birds when you go birding uh, and you're more likely to see them if you kind of know what you're looking for and what you're looking at. But anyway, yeah, Antarctic petrels were my favorite bird of the trip. You know, I'm I'm not a great birder. Uh, and uh, I, I've been looking at the pictures in the books and, you know, Cape petrel and the Antarctic petrel, like, kind of look sort of alike and i'm thinking well i'd be able to tell the difference they are night and day different yeah, i mean really the cape petrels just kind of cruise around kind of a lazy sort of flight and 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 just have a look about them and when i first saw them i said they look like a fulmar i mean they're shaped yeah. like a fulmar they cut the kind of the bullhead and rugged sort of look well antarctic petrel is like a screaming lightning shot i mean they yeah. just come in like a bullet i mean i saw we saw a couple of them a day or two before we had the the experience with the emperor penguin they just kind of zipped by and trying to they were were really hauling ass and they just are altogether different bird Uh, and and then i thought that was great i was like happy with that but when we're standing up there with the emperor penguins and those two birds just gave a show and you're right they just like appeared out of nowhere instantly they just came in and it was so cool that was the other really truly amazing night. I mean, there was there was a bunch of experiences I feel like we really got so lucky with, you know, cruising along that enormous iceberg that was bigger than Rhode Island and Connecticut put together or something, you know, like the A seventy six A. Yeah. That was amazing too. But then that kind of led up to that Emperor Penguin night, and we had just been struggling so hard at that point. Remember, we'd had I think like two oh, and yeah. a half days looking so hard for Antarctic petrol and then all of a sudden you know we're all out there because we you know magically have cruised up to these emperor penguins and these guys start wheeling around and yeah they were hell on wheels it was really something to see people were i mean that's about as close i i nearly started i was nearly brought to tears practically with those emperor penguins then you throw in the antarctic petrels and the snow petrels those are really the only birds there yeah it was extraordinary yeah it was extraordinary people were just you know, peeing their pants. It was just crazy. It, it was, was out of so control. cool. It uh, really was. Yeah. Great experience. So George, I, I want to pick your brain. I, I was, I had COVID on the trip as some listeners probably heard from the last episode. Uh, and I missed South Georgia Island completely. And yeah, I was really pretty bummed about that because that was, I expected that to be the highlight of my trip. I mean, I had these giant King penguin colonies and giant colonies of elephant and fur seals and all the stuff that I missed. But give give listeners a, a, a firsthand, uh, uh, you know, first person experience of what was your favorite time in, in South Georgia? Gosh, I think it was probably St. Andrews Bay. Um, the spots that we went to all the spots that we went to, I had been to before on previous cruises. Although I will say the very first place we went to Elsa hole was so dramatic um, when we arrived. It was gray and rainy and windy, but you could, you know, under this sort of uh, envelope of clouds that kind of enshrouded the top of the island, you could just see this uh, dramatic landscape uh, below it. And, you know, I was I was kind of surprised when they were like, yeah, we're going to go out and Zodiac around in this. I was like, really, man, this looks it looks kind of hairy out there. Uh, but we went out and, you know, we, everybody got pretty wet uh, and it was a little bit of a rough ride. But, man, it was dramatic with all the seals and, uh, you know, the gray headed albatrosses were nesting in numbers there. And that's really the only site that we saw well where there was numbers of macaroni penguins. So that was pretty dramatic. But just the sheer enormity of that uh, king penguin colony at St. Andrew's Bay 
Um, it had been 11 years since I was there last to South Georgia at all. And that penguin colony, I, and when I was there, I was thinking, man, this looks way bigger than I remember. I feel like there's like, I remember there feeling like there was a lot of penguins and it felt even bigger. And then talking to Fabrice, uh, the ornithologist on board and some of the other folks, they gave us a nice rundown later of kind of the situation there. And of course, the colony has actually grown quite a bit. Uh, so it was just amazing to just kind of, you know, you sit there, it's a beautiful scene and and watching these kind of marauding skuas, um, you know, these brown skuas, which are such beasts, uh, amazing beasts, just cruising along, looking like marauders, looking like they're up to no good. They were fun to watch, you know, and uh, and this this flat open plain there where all these penguins uh, are nesting. It was just a sea of penguins. And, you know, they're really a beautiful penguin, king penguins. You know, most most penguins are kind of, they're either funny looking or they're cute, but they're really studies in black and white. And king penguin is almost a blue gray, you know, with the black and the orange and the white. It's a beautiful bird. Um, and just to see that many of them, I think that was the real highlight for me. So, but yeah, and you know, we finished off there at Gold Harbor, which is, we we had a fairly short stay there. We had to get out of there because the wind was picking up, um, and we and you know, cat those catabatic winds on South Georgia can be a serious thing to contend with. I know that in listening to the ABA podcast, that Katinka uh, Dome and that was her favorite site, and I can see why. Uh, it is a beautiful site as well. Uh, so those are a few of the highlight landings. I think if I had to choose one, I'd probably choose St. Andrews Bay just because it was just the enormity. The spectacle of all those penguins was almost just impossible to process. You know, it was ridiculous. From my jailbreaks on top of the boat, uh, when uh, when you guys were sure it looked just crazy. I mean, with, with, that was the place you had to land in the river, wasn't it? Was that that was Gold Harbor. That, that was, was Gold, Gold Harbor. Harbor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Where basically I, the only way we could walk around was by walking around in the river because there was wildlife everywhere else. <laughs> there were seals and, and you, you know, the, you had to navigate through the seals and the skuas and the, and the penguins. And that was part of the cool thing was like, okay, we're going to just go through the river here because all the ground is taken up by, uh, by wildlife. So that, that not a bad cool. problem to have when you're on a, on a nature tour, is it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, George, I'm going to switch subjects. Uh, a, a lot of listeners probably know all about George Armistead, but maybe some of us don't. Tell me your birding story and kind of kind of how you came to where you are today in life. Sure. Yeah. Well, for me, I come by it pretty honestly, uh, this, this birding thing. My dad is uh, a serious birder. He started when he was at the age of nine. I think maybe, I can't remember now, it might have been eight or seven or eight. I, th I think he started a year or two before I did. He kind of started trying to get me interested when I was about six, seven, eight. And it didn't really take much for the first couple of years there. I have like some vague memories. Shamefully, he actually took me to see the two jeer falcons, famous jeer falcons here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, back in like 82, 83, whatever it was. They were on a quarry here. One of them was a white one. I have no memory of it whatsoever. I have no memory. <laughs> two jeer falcons inside at once. I don't remember it at all. It's like one of my big regrets. But, uh, but, you know, finally at the ripe old age of nine, he took us, my, me, my sisters, my mom, um, my parents, they took us on a trip to Churchill, Manitoba. My father had read about this place. Oh, wow. Re really wanted to go. And he, he talked to my mom about it. She was like, yeah, this sounds amazing. So we drove, we did a road trip all the way uh, from Philadelphia, drove uh, through the Midwest on up to Thompson, Manitoba where you catch the train mm -hmm. and uh, and then you take the train for what a day and a half uh, spend a night on the train until you get up to the town of Churchill on sort of the Southwest corner of the Hudson Bay there. Then it was famous as a nesting area for Ross's gulls. And, but also as a big place for belugas, uh, you can, you know, if you hit the timing right, you can see hundreds and hundreds of belugas at once. It's also for a long time and maybe still known as kind of the polar bear capital of the world. We were not there at the right time of year for that, but we were there at a good time for breeding Ross's gulls back when they were pretty common breeder. You'd see them right in town then. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was also a place for Smith's Long Spurs. And I, I have a distinct memory there of going into one of the shops. Um, uh, and seeing postcards featuring birds. 
and I saw uh, what was then an Arctic loon, but is now a Pacific loon. And I thought, man, look at that thing. I would, and I picked it up. And I was like, dad, could we see this on this trip? And he was like, he was like, yeah, he's like, I think we have a good chance. And, uh, and we did see one. And I just remember being like, how does that thing even exist? You know? So my, my, the, I really got spoiled and very lucky that my dad is a serious birder. And, uh, you know, it was on that trip on, it was kind of about halfway up. I remember uh, seeing things like blueing teal and pileated woodpecker and gray partridge along the way. I, we had this, uh, you know, we had the Peterson guide, um, mm -hmm. you know, sitting on this car seat with us. We took our suburban Chevy suburban up there and I just started leafing through it along the way up. And I think it was Wisconsin or Minnesota or someplace. I started realizing, I was like, wow, I actually know a lot of these birds already. Like it's, it's kind of seeped into me. And so by the time we got to Churchill, I actually had my head out the window like a dog. And I was, you know, I remember seeing, you know, Hudsonian Godwits and Smith's long spurs and, you know, nesting lesser yellow legs and trees and up in spruce trees. And, mm -hmm. and um, so th that was kind of the first trip. And then what really sealed the deal for me was the following winter, I participated in what we used to call the red eye circuit. That was my dad was what he called it. And it was a series of Christmas bird counts. We would drive down from Philadelphia to the tip of the Delmarva Peninsula to Cape Charles, which was the Christmas count my father uh, compiled. He gave it up a couple of years ago, uh, but he uh, it, w he compiled it for maybe 50 years or something. I forget how long exactly. <laughs> That's a legacy. Yeah. yeah, a long time. And so we would do that count. We would do the Chincoteague count, the Ocean City, Maryland count, the Crisfield, Maryland count, and then the Dorchester County, uh, Maryland count, the area of Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. And on that trip, there were some other kid birders. Um, there was a couple other young birders. They were all young, uh, really. Uh, it was my father and, you know, maybe a couple 20-year-olds and then about three, you know, awkward uh, early teens. And all of a sudden, I realized, like, the camaraderie aspect of birding, became, it wasn't just about me and my dad or me birding on my own, you know, around these, you know, around the yard. All of a sudden, there was other birders that you could learn from and enjoy and that really cemented it for me. And, uh, and yeah, that, that really, that those Christmas counts, uh, were incredibly important. And I continue to do Christmas counts every year. I now do, I usually do three to five. Sometimes I've done seven or eight Christmas bird counts. I really enjoy Christmas bird counts. So that was kind of how it all started for me. Yeah. I'm in a you know relatively new relationship. My wife died a few years ago and I've got a girlfriend now. And, uh, the idea that, Christmas season is the time to go birding is a new concept, you know, this, it yeah. isn't, you I mean, it isn't about family parties. Well, it is kind of, but you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, I've kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of got plans. You know? Exactly. Might, might have some other stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for me, that's the Christmas bird counts are kind of what it's all about. I, I've been meaning to try to figure out how many I've done now. I haven't I haven't completed as many as some folks I know, like Chandler Robbins did. He compiled a couple of those counts. And Paul Sykes, I think, has compiled and participated in more Christmas bird counts than anybody else. And he was on those a number of those Christmas bird counts as well. Um, but I've been, I've been wanting to, uh, to, to try to figure those numbers out. They are, they are fun. You know, they're fun socially, they're fun birding. Sometimes you get stuck with some bad weather, but usually that makes for some good stories afterwards, at least. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, at least in North America, the Christmas, the, the one good thing about the Christmas bird count is it's only light from eight to four. I mean, it's you true. can maybe do a little owling, but around here, you know, eight to four, that's pretty much the daylight. And it's so, like, gosh, I can't imagine if they did the bird counts in May. <laughs> Yeah, no, you it would be, be really, ending. really in, an endurance episode. Well, I have to admit, I this past weekend I did two uh, Christmas bird counts. One of which was the Cape May count, mm -hmm. and a number of us uh, kind of bailed by about ten a.m. to go watch the World Cup game and uh, the World Cup match. Yeah, to, to see Argentina beat. France, uh, which was fun. I've spent a lot of time in Argentina, so I really wanted to see Messi take it all. And then, you know, we were done by the match was over by about one o'clock and we went out birding for a couple more hours. That was kind of a new uh, way for me to do Christmas bird count. And I thought, geez, you know, this, this isn't bad. You warm up, you have a beer, you know, some yeah. crab cakes and you're, you know, you're back on the road birding again. So yeah. I, I, 
my my local count the the Tahoma Tacoma bird count the last few years I've been really uh kind of the old man lazy part of it we we rent a boat for that so some of us go around commencement bay and you know the bird count can be a slog you know eight nine ten hours of beating the bushes or you can get on the boat at eight and be done by one and <laughs> that's kind of the, yeah <laughs> it's not a not a bad gig yeah, it's true. And it depends on the day. Obviously, there's some days where you're like, this is so good. I, I want I want to squeeze every drop of daylight out of this that I can and maybe even cruise into the dark time. But uh, some days it's nicer to take it easy and and just have it be more social, more fun. And and I think I would say if it stops being fun, then you stop doing it. So you're better off make, keeping it fun. Exactly. George, when I was looking at your, uh, I don't remember, somewhere, I saw that in the early part of your career, you worked at the National... Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. What was working there like? I I know, you know, obviously know nothing about the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. Yes. Well, it's a, I'm still an associate there and and have many good friends and colleagues. It's it is actually it's the oldest natural history museum in the country. It's uh it's got a lot of amazing stuff going on it you know it's got a lot of specimens from a lot of the what we might what some might think of as the the founders of ornithology um you know from wilson and audubon there's you know there's alexander wilson's fouling pieces there and and there's a lot of specimens prepared by audubon and by wilson and you know people like spencer spencer fullerton baird and john kirk townsend and and uh you know a lot of the old names that you'd expect are there uh, but they, they're still there, man. They're, the the ornithology department is still there doing amazing work. I was though this weekend I was birding both those Christmas bird counts with Dr. Jason Wexstein, who heads up the ornithology department there. And when I was there, I was there for seven years, a mix of full time, part time. I worked for my first couple of years in what was called Vireo, and Vireo stands for Visual Resources for Ornithology. Now, this is pre-internet, pretty much, mind you. And so this was, at the time, the largest collection of bird photographs in the world. It was before there was Google Image or eBird or or anything else. Vireo mm -hmm. was where a lot of people got their images. And so, you know, my job was to fill orders there uh, for professors that were, you know, doing slideshows for their classes or somebody that was giving, you know, a series of lectures, Um or to fill orders for publishers that were doing books. Uh, I would send them images and we would, you know, we send them contacts. on a 35 millimeter slide usually. Exactly. We had, yeah, I, I was using <laughs> I slide those. loops. Yeah. Slide loops and light tables. And, and so that was, that was what I did uh, for several years. And I, I often say I went to university of Pennsylvania and that's where I got my, my degrees, my undergraduate and my master's degree. But I also, I really, and, and not to, not to, to disparage Penn at all, but I, in many ways, I feel like I got my education at the Academy of Natural Sciences when I was there. Uh, Dr. Frank Gill uh, was the head of the ornithology department. You know, he's the one that wrote the initial textbook that people use um, in in uh, in universities when they're studying ornithology. And and Dr. Robert S. Ridgely was there, who's kind of one of the big, you know, big names in neotropical ornithology. Mark Robbins uh, was there. It was really a powerhouse, and I just felt I, I, I was sort of, you know, I was like I, I was I got to hang out with these birding gods. I just felt like I was a kid in a candy store. They, they could have paid me nothing, you know, <laughs> to show up. And I was extremely grateful to work there. And, and after a couple of years in Vireo, I went back to school. I had taken some time off basically to do some field jobs and travel around a little bit. And then once I was back in school, I started working part time in the collection there. And we had got a big grant to rehouse all the study skins, the specimens, bird specimens in new cabinets that would be much safer for them and where they'd be much less prone to uh, to damage and much uh, be much better preserved. And so we had to remove the whole collection uh, bit by bit and replace all the cabinets. And, and it was kind of this big musical chairs project of getting the specimens out of the old cabinets into new cabinets as we put the new cabinets in. And that was a real fun thing as well, uh, working with Dr. Nate Rice there. We I got to see the whole collection. And it at the I don't know how big it is relative to other collections, but it was the fifth or sixth biggest at the time I was working there. And it's still a large growing 
uh, collection of specimens. Many of much of what they get now are from window strikes in the area, and they're deeply involved in this Bird Safe Philly project where they're trying to reduce window strikes around the city. So it was a tremendous experience, and I'm thankful to still be associated with the museum. Yeah, for people who aren't uh, too familiar, I have two previous episodes with museum curators, uh, same museum. Uh, uh, Peter Wimberger is the uh, curator for the University of Puget Sound Museum. And UPS is a small college, but it's got a fabulous natural history museum. And uh, Dennis Paulson, who's kind of the Northwest uh, birding god, he wrote the Shorebird uh, yes. books and he's I just uh, dragonfly books and he just knows everything about everything he was yeah. so cool to talk to uh but he uh they both talk about the the continued value of museum collections i mean people think oh what do you need a museum for these days everything's on the internet uh not true this uh, they go into wax eloquent about the continued uh usefulness of museums uh which was fun for me to learn about so i, I love yeah. that yeah it's so, a rich topic so, George, you have uh, done a lot of time as a field guide. Uh, you went through, uh, kind of walk me through, how, how, now you've just opened, just the last year or so, opened uh, your own birding company, birding tour company, Hill, Hill, um, excuse me, Hillstar Nature. And walk me through how you came to be a professional uh, tour guide and develop the confidence to start your own company. Sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I've completed my studies at Penn and I thought for sure I was going to go into environmental consulting. I was convinced that that's what I was going to do. And then I got a, an offer to be a guide at St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs for the summer, which in, this is in Alaska, this island group, a lot of birders will know is smack in the middle of the Bering Sea and is a great area for breeding seabirds, but also for vagrants from Russia. Um, and you get these, you know, crazy vagrant birds that, that get, you know, tossed, tossed, uh, tossed east. And, uh, and so we were, you know, I, I did this job and I thought, well, this will be my last kind of field job until I, I do my real job. And uh, while I was there, I, it, you know, all the tour groups kind of come through and I started to learn about the industry and I thought, geez, you know, maybe I could actually make a living doing this instead. Uh, and, and man, it would be, it would be kind of a dream come true. Uh, I, and I, you know, it was, I, I, knew about the industry, but I didn't really know if there was, you know, how to get into it. Um, and, but while I was there, I ended up catching on with Field Guides Incorporated. I worked with them for 10 years, still have many good friends there. It's a great company and ended up going to the American Birding Association for five years, managed, managing their events program. And then from there, I went on and to be a part of the management team at Rock Jumper Birding. And I still, I'm proud to say I'm good friends with, uh, with everybody at, at each of these places. I think they're all fine, fine. Uh, institutions, companies, and and places I'm I'm proud to still have relationships with, but I did get to a point where I thought, geez, you know, I've been doing this a while. I kind of want to, I want to run my own ship. I feel like there's, I, I I'd like to assemble a team that I I think has really similar philosophy to me in terms of how to run a trip and and uh, and show people a good time in a in a certain way, and. You know, the pandemic rearranged things a lot. Um, it got to the, it, it kind of, I'd been thinking about this for a while. And then that was just kind of, that really shoved me in the direction of starting something new. Um, my my life changed a lot during the pandemic. Uh, I got married during that time, started a new company. We bought a new house. I sold my old condo. I got a family now. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it, it, a lot changed quickly for me. Uh, I'm very excited about it and I'm very thankful for it. But yeah, I got to a point where I just thought, you know, I, I think there's a lot, a lot of my life is changing right now. It's time to make this change as well and, and start something new where, where I feel like it's really in line with, uh, with what I want to do. And, uh, and I've been thankful to, to, to surround myself, I think with a, with a great team and that there's folks that want to work with me at Hillstar uh, that I'm, I'm real excited about. Well, that is cool, Church. I'm going to uh, dig into that a little bit. You said run a trip the way you, your style. What, what is your style? What is a what is an ideal George Armistad field trip? What does it look like? Where does it go? How is it run? Give me a give me the flavor. Sure. Yeah, I I like to get out early. I like to you know sometimes that means pre dawn, but. Um, uh, you know, I like to get out early. I like to have the bulk of the morning out in the field. 
And then often, if uh, it's possible, I, you know, I, food is important to me, Ed, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I know it's important to everybody. I feel like, put it this way, if, if I am well-fed, I am a pretty happy guy. And if I'm not well-fed, I can sort of dissolve into an infant. So <laughs> I always, I always try to, to, to make sure the food is good. The drink is good. The, the birds are good and that there's time to enjoy all of those things. Maybe not quite equally because the field time is really what is drives us everybody. Um, but I think, you know, I, I am a birder first and foremost, but I really like mammals as well. And I really like herps. Uh, I'm getting into insects more and more. I didn't really, I don't think of myself as a botanist or a plant guy, but as time goes on, I'm real, it's sort of like I was talking about with the birds. I'm starting to realize I actually know a fair number of plants and I'm, I'm digging them. And I'm, I'm you know, I talk about on my podcast all the time about uh, how I'm, I'm big into planting uh, natives now. So I guess on a trip, I, I am and generally with our, our philosophy at Hillstar Nature, I think is like not to do necessarily list driven trips trips where you're trying to check off every single last you know bird but we do want to build nice good pretty looking ebird lists that is a priority uh some you know have some photo take some time for photos stop smell the roses spend time with the critters and birds that really are particular to that particular location uh biogeography is is uh, is you know kind of the focus right like let's let's think about the stuff that is cool about this particular area spend time with that celebrate that and then see how it interfaces with the people too you know because that's i feel like that's where conservation really is right it's kind of where the people and the animals meet that's where the rub is that's where we got to figure stuff out the more we can learn about that the more we can spend time thinking about that the more good we can hopefully do in the long term so i think uh that's that's kind of what makes me tick is is soaking up the 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 regional and the special birds of an area, the animals that are supposed to be there, and uh, you know, celebrating that with some nice food and drink and good company that includes our group, but hopefully also some folks that can can shed light on what it's like to live in those areas. That sounds like a pretty cool way to run a trip, George. I have to say, I uh, I'm excited to maybe go on one of your trips sometime. I saw that oh, there's one space left on your uh, Columbia trip coming up, or there was yeah. what I looked on the internet this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Think about it. Uh, we got, we have the, we have the, the there's the life list one actually, which just sold out, which Molly oh, did. And that's what I was thinking about. Okay. Yeah. I do have a Santa Marta strip coming up as well, but that's uh, the space I think is, is um, there's a couple spaces there. I don't know if they're going to go or not. We'll see. There's some interest, but we'll see. But yeah, I appreciate that. Ed, you know, it would be a pleasure to travel with you anytime. Yeah. Anyway. So George, uh, how did you assemble your team? I, it, that's a big list of uh pretty hot shit birders on your uh, website and are most of them uh kind of affiliates you know f- do a trip now and then or any of them working full-time how, do, how does that all work with a company like yours yeah so there's a couple of us i think that are really planning on making guiding most of most of how we make our income uh myself uh josh coville uh that's that's kind of what we do and that's kind of what we want to do and then uh, we have some pretty key associates like Holly Merker is one of my best friends for for ages now. We've worked together on a variety of different projects over the years. She, I'm lucky to call her one of my closest confidants, friends and colleagues. And w- so when I started this out, she was my first call. I said, Holly, you know, I love working with you. I trust you more than anybody else. And she's got just a unique perspective on birding and birders uh, through her work with ornotherapy. And, you know, we've worked a lot of the ABA Young Birder Camps together. We've worked a number of other events over the years. We have a similar philosophy and like, let's make it fun, you know, entertain and educate at the same time. People usually have fun and learn at best that way, I think. Uh, and so we we have we share that philosophy. And also one of the key things is watching the clock, right? Don't turn your back on the clock. The clock keeps ticking. If you forget about that, you can run into trouble real quick. 
So, uh, so I do feel like all of us, uh, share that, but yeah, I, so Holly, I've known for years, you know, Josh, I've only just met, uh, about a year ago, we were birding in Montana. Uh, we had an amazing day. We actually just bumped into Montana's first cast and sparrow, which was long overdue, but Josh picked it right on out. And I was like, I just like the way this guy ticks. I knew we had some mutual friends. So we decided to go birding together and we started talking about, um, you know, how, how we like to bird and, and what we want to do and found out that there's a lot of overlap there. So yeah, Josh has been great. I think the three of us, plus uh, some other folks that are going to do, you know, one or two trips a year, Alex Harper, who you've had on the show. Yeah. Uh, he's a great guy, very good friend of Holly's and mine and, and somebody that has the same philosophy, like make it fun, make it educational, keep it loose, watch the clock and don't let, don't let the details get away from you too much. He shares that philosophy as well. Whitney Lanfranco, uh, who also her day job is, is working at Leica as the nature representative there. Uh, so that's a handful of the folks. We have a couple other folks we're talking to as well. I'm thankful to be working with Adam Wallane, who's a good friend and also one of the most well-traveled and experienced guides I've ever met and in that I think exists in the world. He's uh, he's an incredibly talented guy and he's working on a snow leopards trip for us and, and one or two other trips. So yeah, that's kind of some of the team members there. We're looking to add one or two more, I think as the, the year goes along, but then I think, you know, we've kind of got our team close to set. My, my job is to run, uh, you know, half a dozen, eight trips a year myself uh, and then try to work on helping everybody else to set up the other ones too many more guides and I'm going to run out of time to do that. And I'm maybe running short as it is. So yeah. uh, sounds so like a pretty big job uh, juggling all those balls. And uh, I'm sure, you know, some people get sick. There's gonna, you know, there's gonna, you know, there's gonna, <laughs> you gotta have a sub in your back pocket somewhere. It can do anything anywhere that may be named George. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a fun. I, I, uh, I'm a family doctor and I, uh, I, you know, ran a business, ran, I, I was the managing partner in a pretty big family medicine business. And, and I have to say that it, it, I, I love practicing medicine, but I also liked running a business. It was kind of a challenge. I grew up, my, my dad was an automobile dealer. So I grew up in business and had a general feel for what it was like to be the jefe, you know, and, uh, and I, I liked uh, running it. So the, the business part was enjoyable. It's not, it, it can be, have fun with that too. Yeah, thanks. I do say I always say I'm happy if I'm learning. And that has been the biggest uh, learning curve for me on this. While I've done a lot of design, marketing and execution of tours over the years, the backside of the business is where I'm learning. And, uh, and that, that has, you know, that has been uh, difficult at times, but I, I like that challenge. And, uh, and it still allows me to do what I want to do. And, and yeah, I, you know, every, every year I try to pivot a little bit, learn, learn more. And, uh, and th this last year, uh, I, it gave me a, a newfound respect for some of my colleagues that I've worked with over the years for some of the tasks that they always did that I never really had to do much or just never had occasion to do. Now it's like, oh, right. There's that part of the business. I didn't do that before. Now, if nobody else does it, you know, it's not going to get done. So, uh, so yeah, it's been, that part's been a learning curve. Uh, but I, I like that challenge. I want that challenge without it. I think, uh, you know, it, things start to become less in interesting. So. Good for you. Uh, Judge, I'm going to kind of switch away from the international stuff. I know I, I'm a county birder here in Pierce County, and I know that you're a Philadelphia County birder. Uh, what's been happening in Philadelphia County? I, I heard, I learned from your podcast that Philadelphia and Philadelphia County are the same thing. Yes. Basically. So well, you've I'll got a, a an urban county. It really is. Yeah. And that's part of the fun of it is that there is limited green space. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it, at times that can be frustrating and tiring, but, but knowing that like, there's only a few places to go means that, you know, you're, you're going to run into other birders, which can be great or not so great, depending on <laughs> what you want to do are. that day yeah. and what your plans are. But it does, it, it's, I keep telling folks, you know, when I started birding Philly, it was really, despite living here my entire life, I hadn't really started uh, birding the city until about 2011. I always went to South Jersey or I went down to the Outer Banks or the Delmarva Peninsula. Those were the areas that really, the, the coastal areas really intrigued me. And eventually I got to a point, I thought, geez, you know, it's it's a long drive to get to any of these places. More and more, I'd like, I'd like to explore right around here. And there was two friends in particular that had been doing that for years. Uh, Todd Fellenbaum and Frank Winfelder, 
uh, Frank actually passed away earlier this year and he, and he's a, a big Philly mentor to many of us. And I started kind of tagging along with those guys. And for a long time, it was us, maybe one or two others that were birding the city. And so it was like, whatever we found, what was, what was seen. And now on the chat group here, there's, you know, over 300 people and more and more all the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, this weekend was one of the craziest <laughs> in uh, recent memory um, for Philly birders. Uh, there was a, a there was Nash Litter Flycatcher that's been hanging around for a week or so. That's the first really chaseable one. There was one other one a few years ago, but then there was a Lajuli bunting that was found, which is the sixth for the state, which is actually more than I realized for Pennsylvania. Yeah, it seems like a lot. Yeah, that I was surprised by that, but the first ever for the city. And a bunch of people went to chase that. I was lucky enough to see it the first afternoon it was there. And then the a bunch of people went the next morning to chase it, and they found a Leconte sparrow. And that was also new for the city. The, the wow. Lajuli has pretty much disappeared since then, but uh, the Leconte is showing beautifully, and people are getting just wonderful imagery of that. It's putting on quite a show. So, yeah, I mean, it's been really fun to see the the Philly birding scene grow and blossom. It's a great community. You know, like anywhere we have our, our little dust ups, uh, you know, and, and there's some personalities that uh, that, you know, can can rub each other the wrong way. But I think overall, it's a really great welcoming, uh, more and more diverse uh, community for so long. I think, you know, Peterson, I think it was used to say that, that birding was the only hobby that united like 12 year old boys with, you know, 80 year old ladies. And that was often, you know, that dynamic was, was kind of a real thing. There was many, many, many exceptions, of course, but uh, now birding, the popularity is growing so much that it's just, you know, all ages, all walks of life um, are, are getting into that. And to see that is in a place like Philadelphia uh, is, is just really fun to watch and rewarding that story is so true i when i first moved to washington this is 35 or more years ago and i was really just a very novice birder uh and i went on a field trip to i think it was nisqually national wildlife refuge i'm not sure it's a little local field trip and the field trip leaders with theus bach who is kind of close to legendary around here she was fabulous birder she might not have been 80 but she was not 40. Uh, and uh, the the co-field guide was Patrick Sullivan. Patrick was phenomenal young birder here, uh, tragically had bipolar disorder and ended his life at a young age. It was horrible. But uh, he was maybe 12 at the time. Uh, and Theus and Patrick led the trip. And uh, I can remember we're going and Patrick pointed something out. And I remember Th Theus saying, Patrick, we should slow down a little bit. And let's look at that bird a little more carefully because <laughs> <Just>, uh, <laughs> Patrick was, he was so sharp. He, he could identify naked eye birds that, you know, so far away. And he was, and he had ultimate confidence in himself at 12, you know, and, and wow. he was right almost all the time, but as they has pointed out, not all the time. So it was, it was <laughs> a fun. Birding will I humble still us remember. all. I can yeah. still remember. Patrick, you should, you should just slow down. <laughs> I can remember her voice. That's fun memory. Uh, anyway, you're right. It does bring people. It it is a, a hobby or pastime that people of all ages and all skills and all energy levels and you know, with just about any uh, imaginable uh, uh, disability can still uh, enjoy and excel at. So it yeah. is a great pastime. So just let's uh, let's wrap up uh, with telling me, I saw that you have two winter pelagic trips scheduled, one in each of the next two winters. What on earth is it like doing a winter pelagic out of the mid-Atlantic coast? It sounds freezing. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it really depends on the day. The, the, wind, the weather in winter here is so variable. I mean, to be honest, probably these trips, we schedule them and we schedule a weather day for the next day, hoping that one of those two days will get out uh, because the weather is really variable. It can be, you know, balmy and like in the high 40s or low 50s and relatively calm 
or it can be pretty rough and nasty. Uh, but the truth is that if it's rough and nasty, you don't usually go out. And if it's really cold, you don't usually go out because you can get, you know, stuff happening like, you know, the spray freezing along the rails in the deck and become slippery and nasty. So usually, actually, if the trips go, the weather's not that bad. Uh, it can be pretty chilly, uh, but there are there are cabins on these boats. So folks will go in, they'll get some, you know, they'll get some hot you know, cocoa or whatever from their thermos and, and warm up. And, and there's always good conversation to be had uh, with fellow birders, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real mixed bag. You never know what to get out there. You're going to get out there. Um, pretty much all these trips, you can, you can count on seeing uh, a good variety of sea ducks, scoters, long-tailed ducks often, and, uh, and some gulls and, of, and often some slightly rarer gulls, you know, Iceland glaucus gull, maybe some others. And, uh, and northern gannets usually uh, are in evidence, and sometimes they're in really big numbers, and sometimes they're right off the stern of the boat calling frequently, which can be a real thrill to hear them. They make crazy sounds. And uh, and then, you know, there's things we hope for to see are, are the alcids, uh, the, the auks, uh, which include things like razorbill is the most common one. We, we usually see dozens, those in the dozens, and, and sometimes hundreds even. And, uh, and then, you know, if we're lucky, you get one of, one of the two myrrhs. Sometimes on rare trips, you get both thick built and common myrrh and dove key is another big one that we're really, we really hope for on these winter trips. Many of those trips, we, these trips were really kind of targeting dove key, uh, hoping to, to run into them. Cause that's a special bird that he, Alvaro mentions on our podcast frequently that it's a bird he still has not seen. And nor have I. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a tough one unless you go to the breeding areas and or one of these pelagics, you know, it can be a tricky bird to see. I will say I don't have any photos I'm particularly pleased with yet of Dove Key. Uh and this year, uh it looks like it's going to be a big year for them at least the next month or so. We'll see. There's been big big counts um and even some overland reports of them. Uh, so we'll see how that shapes up. And then, you know, there's also the chance at whales out there uh, and uh, and and sometimes other sea life as well. Uh, but those are some of the things we look for out there and the conditions. Yeah, sometimes it's it's a little chilly and, and not and not as nice. <laughs> but usually if, if we make it out, it's actually pretty decent weather wise. That's good to know. George, thanks so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Let's wrap up with letting people know how they can get a hold of you and uh, and how they can find your company and that sort of thing. Yes. Well, the website is hillstarnature.com. Um, most of what you need to find, you can find right there. Uh, we are on Instagram and Facebook, and we are st- soon to start a Twitter account. I think Josh Coville is, is going gonna, is gonna to ma- manage that. Uh, but yeah, we're both on on Instagram and uh, and Facebook is under Hillstar Nature. You can find us there. So I do, and my personal um, Instagram is Charmistead, which is my last name, Armistead, with a C-H in front of it. Well, and uh, so, yeah, I hope folks will check us out and be in touch. I want to thank you, Ed. It's been a, a real pleasure today, and it was a real pleasure uh, getting to know you on the, uh, on the, on the trip down to the Southern Ocean there. Well, I feel exactly the same way, George. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. I'll make sure I put a link in the podcast notes to your website and so people can get a hold of you and maybe go on a Hillstar Nature trip. Take care. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Well, I enjoyed that. I love listening to George and Alvaro's podcast, Life List, and I learned today that they're taking a little break, a little uh, between season one and season two, so if you haven't noticed their podcast up for the last couple of weeks, don't worry, they're going to be back uh, soon with great stuff yet to come, and uh, so I really enjoy getting to know George, meeting him on the trip, and having a chance to talk with him today. And as some of you know, I always put up a blog post associated with each episode on the podcast. And in this episode, George brought up some topics that are just, to me, really interesting. Uh, so I'm going to make an extra special, <laughs> in my own opinion, extra special blog post this time. And some of the topics I'm going to cover are the eradication of rodents on South Georgia Island. What the heck is a catabatic wind? Uh, Bird Save Philadelphia project, the Bird Save Philly project. I'm going to put a, a link to Christmas bird counts and some of the things about those, especially the local ones around here. And I'm going to put links to both Peter Wimberger and Dennis Paulson's uh, 
previous episodes because we talked about those and the importance to museums. Uh, so I hopefully you enjoy those. If you're interested in any of those things, check out the blog post on birdbanner.com. I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes too. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>